Well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Simon Miles, assistant professor at Duke University and the author of Engaging the Evil Empire, Washington, Moscow, and the Beginning of the End of the Cold War. Miles is also a co-editor of a new book, The Reagan Moment, America and the World in the 1980s. Roger and Simon discuss President Reagan's foreign policy, including his strategy towards the Soviet Union. Dr. Simon Miles, welcome to Reaganism. Thanks so much for having me, Roger. Now, you're an assistant professor at Duke University and author of uh, Engaging the Evil Empire, Washington, Moscow, and the Beginning of the End of the Cold War, as well as other books and publications write frequently for War on the Rocks and have a new book coming out, which you're, I believe, the co-editor called The Reagan Moment, America and the World in the 1980s. Pretty exciting. Yeah, I think it's a great time for Reagan scholarship. It's an exciting time to be working on the 40th president. Uh, and I've certainly been trying to capitalize on those opportunities to the greatest extent that I can. Well, you're coming kind of with an open door over here at the Reagan Institute. We're, we're, we're applauding you. All and I'm way. grateful for it. <laughs> You're a diplomatic historian, expertise in the Cold War in the 1980s. And for those watching, you're younger, right? You're not uh, one of those academics that has been doing this, let's say, for decades uh, or more. What got you interested in this time period and studying Reagan? So I got interested in Reagan, actually, in a backward sense. Uh, in that I was really initially interested in what was going on in the Soviet Union in the for early 1980s. Uh, and that came basically, Roger, from taking a lot of courses which talked about, you know, Leonid Brezhnev, who led the Soviet Union from the mid-1960s until the very early 1980s. And then that just jumped straight on to Mikhail Gorbachev, who, of course, was the last leader uh, of the Soviet Union. And there were these three years which sort of just didn't happen. And that struck me as odd. And those well, they were years- They were dying, weren't they? The Soviet right. leaders were just dying. <laughs> and, that, and that was the answer that I was given when I said, you know, this is, this is strange to me that we just ignore this period of time. Uh, and it's also uh, strange to me that that's basically an entire presidential term which we are not really addressing in the American context. So this is 1981 to 1985, roughly, is that right? 1982 to 1985, okay. really. But yes, um, this sort of first Reagan term, also known as the 10 years of Yuri Andropov and then Konstantin Chernyenko in the Soviet Union. So the puzzle came in that way, that, that there was this gap that we never really talked about. But what we did know was that everything that came next was huge, right? There's this gap and then the Cold War starts to end. The Soviet Union starts to radically transform itself. An American president allegedly totally changes his approach to the primary geopolitical adversary of the United States. And this just didn't make sense to me. Uh, we know that what came after was a huge deal. And so I was curious about what changed, right? It, it, didn't seem, it didn't seem to make sense to me that this is just an ignorable period of time. So, so that's so you, really how I got interested in Ronald Reagan. Got it. And then it, I imagine that led to your book, Engaging 
the evil empire. And what stands out is the time and research that you engaged in in Eastern Europe and the archives there. So you probably, well, how many languages do you speak? What, what, what's the story here? How do you, what are you doing? And how many archives could you enter over there and, and, and read the stuff they have? So I, I got myself into uh, a lot of, of archives. Um, and I've been, I'm fortunate that I, I can speak a range of Eastern European uh, languages as well as, as French and German. Uh, so I was and Russian and, and my, my background is actually Slovak. Um, so that is a leg up in, in, in doing this. I would think, uh, yeah. In, in, in large part because uh, the materials on the 1980s are much less open in the archives of the superpowers, both the American archives and the Russian archives, than they are in actually a lot of the archives of the allies of those superpowers. So even if, for example, East Germany or Czechoslovakia was very much a, a supporting role to the Soviet Union, uh, they still were on the receiving end of an enormous quantity of information from Moscow. So when I talk about this, I kind of call it researching through the back door um, and accessing papers which are not declassified in Russia today from the archives of countries that don't exist anymore. And Give an example, Simon. That's fascinating. So you're sure. going into these places that are opening up. You can get you know, material that you would never get in the United States or in Russia. Give me an example of like your Indiana Jones big find moment. Like, wow, that, that, that was a great document, which you know, scholars who can't speak the language, didn't get in, would probably wait another decade or more to find. Sure. So one of the big stories about the period that I'm interested in, that is the first half of the 1980s, uh, is generally that in November of 1983, the world almost ended because NATO had an exercise called Able Archer, which included the rehearsal of some nuclear command and control techniques. The Soviets thought that this was cover for a surprise attack, and they almost launched a preemptive strike. Um, scary if true, but, and, and certainly um, universally accepted, almost universally accepted. Uh, so one of the kind of aha moments uh, of which you speak it occurred for me in the archives of the Czech, Czechoslovak security services, which are in, in fairly central Prague. Uh, and I found a report on the series of exercises in which Abel Archer fit, which was called Autumn Forge. And it was in Czech. And I learned that this was because the KGB had basically subcontracted surveilling this out to Czechoslovak intelligence and East German intelligence. And they tell a completely different story. They so, narrate, so let's just, let's just yeah. break this down. So we, we have NATO doing an exercise, which wasn't particularly unusual during that time. But this In one... No, yeah, very routine, actually. Routine. But this one... I think I saw you right you now was viewed as more realistic, right? And, and perhaps ratcheting up a bit and, and simulating some sort of series of events that would lead to some nuclear exchange or attack. And the view was this kind of reinforced the image of Reagan and, and somehow being this, you know, provocateur and will lead us all into nuclear war. But the reality is. The reality is, different. the reality is, is that both the Czechoslovaks and the East Germans said, you know, there are some things about this that are different. There are some things about this that are same. 
Some of those differences don't argue for higher danger uh, in terms of, you know, and I don't want to get too into the technicalities of right. how you structure international military exercises, but there are a lot of data points that suggest diminished risk uh, in actual fact, and they observed all of these highly accurately. Um, and they also didn't believe that this reflected a desire by the American government or the governments of NATO to really escalate tensions in Europe, which were which were high. I don't I don't dispute that, but there's kind of a reassuring story here, since we mm. still live in a nuclear in a world with nuclear weapons, that Soviet leaders understood accurately about their American counterparts that these are not suicidal actors. These are sensible, responsible people and that they are not stepping outside of the norms here. So the Able Archer story is a really good Cold War story, right? Spies, there's a whole supercomputer angle to it, which we don't need to get into right now. Um, it's got kind of all the hallmarks, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, it turns out that to the Eastern Bloc observers who are watching this happen, there's really nothing alarming or remarkable about it. Just one follow-up on that, and I want to kind of take a zoom out a bit and talk about how Reagan was viewed by the Eastern Bloc and their leaders. Of course, Eastern Bloc was not Moscow, was right. not the Soviet Union. Vitally, yeah. This, is it possible that those in the Politburo sitting in Moscow had an entirely mm -hmm. different read and perhaps were not internalizing what Prague was sending back to Moscow? So that's, that's the most important point, and I'm glad you raised it. Uh, we have a lot of evidence on that, too. Uh, we don't have it in the form of the highly classified military intelligence reports that we can get out of the East German and Czechoslovak archives, but we have it in the form of extensive interviews, which were conducted by highly knowledgeable subject matter experts, most of them working for the Office of Net, Net Assessment out of the Pentagon yep. right after the Cold War. Um, and they reinforced this to a great, ex uh, to a, an overwhelming extent in terms of the quantity of people who are, who are saying, no, there was really nothing to this. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them, uh, in fact, who is the head of, uh, of uh, a naval intelligence division, you can read when you read the interview transcripts, just snaps at his interviewer and says, all of you Westerners come here and ask me about this. And I don't understand why all of you Westerners come here and ask me about this. This is really weird to me. It was a military exercise. They did stuff. We did some stuff on our side to sort of show, hey, we're watching you. We know what you're doing. Uh, but, but what are you American weirdos so obsessed with this one thing that happened in late 1983? So you're, it's a good point, Roger. But it's a great um, example of how the narrative, popular narrative of Abel Archer, you know, just kind of takes hold. It, yeah. The conscience of historian, popular historians, and just people who remember the time, oh, this was a moment we're on the precipice of something very dangerous. And the reality, of course, that you just shared is that, what are you talking about? But it was deliberate by Moscow, right? I mean, they, they did at the time want yes. to kind of foment this angst, correct? Absolutely. At this time, and with an eye to domestic audiences, as much their as domestic not, audience. their domestic audience, right. as much as if not more than 
uh, the international audiences or audiences in the United States, they had a vested interest and they talk about this. Soviet policymakers talk about this. Uh, they write things like we scared our own people uh, into one, into primarily accepting the burden of Soviet defense spending and the consequences that the Soviet non-free market economic system uh, imposed on everyday Soviet citizens in order to make that defense spending happen. You know, at this point, the Soviet Union, I like to joke, and, and if there are any economists listening, I know that this isn't technically correct. Uh, at this point in the late 20th century, the Soviet Union is the world's most advanced late 19th century economy. And uh, things are not going well by the early to mid 1980s. And this is being increasingly understood by key players in the Soviet policy making sphere, both foreign policy and domestic economic policy. And so the solution, which to be fair, is a pretty lazy one uh, that they arrive at is to scare their people into believing that no matter how unpleasant this is, it's necessary because of the exigent circumstances. And of course, that's something they could do, you know closed system, system right. that, you know, it's this autocratic system of government. Right. That's a lot easier to do when you control all of the media. And you can read the pages, as I have at that length of, of Pravda and Izvestia and all of the other major publications, and they're reinforcing this narrative. But you start scratching that public surface and start getting access at the internal documentation. And even though none of these people are fans of Ronald Reagan or American capitalism. Uh, they're saying, for example, Yuri Andropov, who is the head of the KGB for a very long time and then becomes the head of the Soviet Union from 1982 to 1984 when he dies. Uh, in 1981, he meets with Eric Mielke, who is the head of the East German intelligence agency. So sort of his primary uh, partner in many ways, the East Germans had a massive intelligence apparatus. Andropov, the KGB head, uh, the Soviet KGB head, Mielke, the East German Stasi head, uh, they sit down and Andropov says something really telling. He says, you know, these capitalists, they're not building factories and palaces just to destroy them in a nuclear war. Right. They, there's an understanding of, 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 of that, that kind of motivation on the part of the United States. So they, they knew what they were doing. Which, of course... Was, was a big part of what Reagan kind of in his rhetoric and his communication was always emphasizing freedom and a future and something beyond conflict. Right. I mean, Absolutely. Was... Uh, that's, that's vital. I think to how Reagan saw the cold war, which is that he saw a world past it. I don't think he saw that world coming in 1992 as quickly right. as it did. I don't think he, why well, we know. I think he time, would say as much. Yeah. Well, at the time, we know that he was saying he didn't think he would ever live to see the end of the Soviet Union, which, of course, he did. Let's zoom out a little bit because we got into this conversation talking about your book, Engaging the Evil Empire. It can be bought on Amazon. Check it out. Purchase it. Makes a great yeah. Christmas and Hanukkah gift. There we go. <laughs> you get we're, Hanukkah Christmas gifts are a great time for Reagan books. Um Studying, looking into the archives in Eastern Europe, if you just pulled it all out and get, had a sense of how the Eastern Bloc viewed Ronald Reagan, uh, the leadership, the people, capture it for us and kind of ha perhaps how did it change the 
prevailing narrative in terms of how Reagan was viewed on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Roger, this was another one of those aha moments where I was coming across all of this reporting on Reagan where they were using terms of approbation in many ways, which is not the image of, of Reagan. Um, so this comes from the Carter years where the Soviets and their partners felt really burned by Jimmy Carter. Uh, one Czechoslovak diplomat, diplomat refers to him as, and I believe I'm quoting accurately here, obviously in translation, uh, as the inscrutable zigzagging Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and so when the Reagan campaign gets going, there's a sense among Soviet leaders uh, and Soviet intelligence and their partners that even though they don't love everything that they're hearing coming out of this you know, major party candidate for president's mouth, it does seem that at least he has an agenda and that he's probably going to stick to it. So that's the first point, is that there is a welcome sense of kind of a return to normalcy, in a sense, or at least predictability in American foreign policy. The second big observation that uh, I was coming up, coming across, and this represents some you know, cynicism about the American political system, was that even some of Reagan's more bombastic rhetoric, and he did use bombastic rhetoric, I think it's fair to say, during the campaign, and also during his first term in office, more so than his second. For all of that, they believe that he was still a sort of obedient servant of the capitalist classes, and thus that he might talk a big game, but at the end of the day, he knew on which side America's bread was buttered. And that was not to rock the boat uh, with the Soviet Union. Here again, in contrast to, to Jimmy Carter. So this is an interesting different side of Reagan as he's being perceived by the primary American adversary in that he kind of represents a, a stabilizing force. Right in American politics when he comes into well, office. Predictability is stabilizing, but doesn't necessarily mean continuity. No. So I think they were right on the first proposition. The second that you know, suggests that he did not want to rock the boat. I mean, he was quite clear that as Reagan, that he was leaving the world of detente and was a, a, Absolutely. A, a pursuing rollback. He was, he was Dayton's most ardent critic uh, when he runs against Jerry Ford in 76. Right. And also he, when he entertained the idea uh, of taking a run after, against uh, Richard Nixon. So one of the more fascinating documents I've ever come across was in Moscow, uh, which was a study produced for the Central Committee uh, on the first term of Reagan's foreign policy, which was produced uh, around the time of his second inauguration. So he had already won re-election, but I believe it was about a week earlier than he actually started term two. And in that, the opinion is advanced that a, the first Reagan term foreign policy-wise looked no different to what a second Carter term would have looked had Carter been reelected in 1980, which I do think is a stretch um, in say. large part because I think Reagan had a, a much more fully formed grand strategy or sort of national level scheme for how to approach the Soviet Union than did Jimmy Carter. But again, the, the element of continuity kind of rears its ugly head here. I mean, you couldn't, I've heard people make the argument in terms of defense buildup that the 
seeds for the Reagan buildup began towards the end of Carter's. So their arguments were one, the defense buildup had started. Yes, it was, you know, Reagan put gasoline on the fire, if you will, but, but he didn't start the fire. Um, And two, that Carter was also starting to say a lot of nasty things about the Soviet Union. He was focusing on human rights, whereas Reagan was talking about sort of system of government uh, and individual liberties type questions. That was their uh, that was their main sort of uh, thrust. I want to push on the grand strategy point, which, of course, was a difference you just outlined between how Carter was dealing with the Soviets and how Reagan came in. You wrote a great piece in War on the Rocks in, in December of 2020. So just under a year ago, called Rebuilding, Reaching Out, and Other Lessons from Ronald Reagan. You have these kind of lessons, what we can learn today from Reagan. And and the one I want to focus on and emphasize is this kind of dual track grand strategy. So that's kind of fancy language of Reagan was kind of operating at two levels as he was engaging the Soviet Union, leading the United States to back him in this approach, but also messaging and engaging with the Soviet leadership. Tell us about that and and why that might be a lesson learned today. I mean, you were writing this piece in War in the Rocks with an eye towards the Biden administration. Yeah. So the big story that I tell in Engaging the Evil Empire uh, is about Reagan's carrot and stick approach to the Soviet Union, uh, which I think, if we just think about this in human terms and in how we govern our our own interactions with other people, especially uh, people or groups of people from whom we want stuff, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, so on the one hand, there's no no uh, escaping the fact that Ronald Reagan was a committed anti-communist. Um, he had a vision and an understanding of the Soviet Union uh, and the perniciousness of its system and what that meant for the people who lived there, uh, which motivated that. Um, So he didn't like their system, but he also recognized that they were a fact of life and that they had a system, they had a government, and thus that you couldn't just make demands of them and expect them to fold at the first uh, at the first uh, at the first attempt. So on the one hand, you have this desire to change uh, in many ways, at least Soviet behavior, if not the Soviet system in and of itself. And you need levers to do that. And between states, that usually has to do with some tools of power. So we see the massive defense buildup. We see the efforts to consolidate America's alliances like NATO. We see the strong rhetorical messaging coming out of the White House about what the nature of the threat is as a reminder to Americans and to other people around the world that that we're doing this for a reason, that this isn't just uh, sort of uh, fighting and competing for the sake of it. But at the same time, I think Reagan recognized something that we would all understand, which is that just punishing without any credible commitment to stopping when behavior changes does not work, right? I mean, you kind of so know this need from- for carrots. So you need yeah. something to incentivize more positive behavior. Or- incentivize more positive behavior such that, you know, when I say I'll stop hurting you if you do X, 
that you will then believe me. And Reagan actually does it. He makes deals, for example, with the Soviet leadership on some Siberian Pentecostalists who are, who've taken refuge in the basement of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. He says, you know, if you just let these people out, I won't make political hay out of it. The and Soviets they trusted do him with that, right? I mean, this is something that they- They did trust they... him. And, and that gets him a lot of traction at future meetings where Soviet officials are talking about this, where they say, you know, Reagan made this promise to us and kept it. You know, just to want to drill down on that one, because it's something that I was struck reading the Reagan diaries mm-hmm. in his first communication, as Reagan's first communication with Brezhnev. Almost the majority of that letter that he wrote, which seems to be he... Hand wrote. Kind of, say, say that again? Hand wrote. The hand, hand wrote. letter. Kind of ignoring the State Department's draft, but focused on Sharansky, another dissident, mm-hmm. as human rights element he cared deeply about, supporting dissidents, but was trying to get a deal, kind of like the one you just described. We'll take care of this just between us. Let this man go free. At that point, he was new. That is, Reagan was new, and the trust wasn't there, and it was never going to happen. But that was consistently Reagan, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think he recognized that the way to solve problems, and he really, I think, personally felt the human rights issues. I think they resonated with him deeply as an individual, uh, which I think is laudable uh, because these are really horrible stories in a lot of cases. Uh, I think he recognized that sometimes the way to solve the, the problems of these individuals was not to basket them in with uh, this huge campaign, but rather to just solve the problem and then deal with some of the other issues. But, later. but flip that, and perhaps this is where you're going, the rhetoric, particularly in that first term, drove the Soviets crazy. I mean, it was just so strong, so unforgiving, so much pressure. I think it's certainly, I would certainly agree with your characterization of the the strength and the heated tone of the rhetoric. Uh, But I would dispute that it actually drove the Soviets crazy. Oh, interesting. There's, There's a fascinating moment which happens when George H.W. Bush visits Moscow in late 1982 for Brezhnev's funeral, Leonid Brezhnev's funeral, the leader of the Soviet Union has just died. And he and George Shultz, who is the new, fairly new Secretary of State, take a meeting with Yuri Andropov, who is the incoming Soviet leader. And Andropov says something really fascinating in this meeting, which I think which colored a lot of my understanding of the rhetoric emanating from both Washington and Moscow during the early 1980s. And this touches on our point earlier about the Soviet manufacturing, the Soviets manufacturing this era, this aura of crisis. Andropov says, look, Mr. Vice President, you and I both know that we need to say stuff for our domestic constituencies for various mobilization and justification reasons. And we sometimes need to be very harsh with one another for our domestic audiences. I want you to know that I understand the game that we're both playing and that I hope that we both as nuclear armed superpowers, and he focuses extensively on the kind of responsibility that comes with having nuclear arms, 
that we'll both act as responsible stakeholders and not let emotions cloud our judgment when it comes to big existential questions of life and death in the world. Mm. So yes, the Soviets did not like it when Reagan said things like that their system would be left on the ash heap of history, but they also recognized that, that they were doing similar things. And Dropov himself, for example, likens Reagan to Adolf Hitler on the front page of Pravda on multiple occasions, um, which is not something you know, that, that was well received in the United States. Uh, so I think we need to disaggregate a little bit between the harsh rhetoric, which definitely right. happened, and the extent to which leaders actually believe that there's something deeper there that they need to worry about actively. What, one quick follow-up, perhaps... It was good that Andropov was sharing that with Vice President H.W. Bush and George Shultz, but Reagan seemed to believe what he was saying. I mean, those oh, there's are, no those doubt are deeply he held believed. views. Right. But it was. But there's rhetoric. a lot of daylight between uh, I would like the Soviet Union's political system to end, the Westminster speech of 1982. Right. And I will destroy the Soviet Union in order to eradicate the scourge of its political system, which was the kind of, well, that's sort of the Abel Archer myth. That's a lot of the right. myth about Reagan as the sort of he trigger happy. Press the button. Yeah, the trigger happy nuclear cowboy. You know, you mentioned this funeral and the delegation led by H.W. Bush when Brezhnev passes, Andropov's coming in. And, and you mentioned in your article how Reagan did not meet with the Soviet counterpart until Gorbachev. Yeah. And there's an element there, a uh, lesson that you draw, again, a lesson from Reagan for today in, in your piece, that don't engage in negotiations for the sake of negotiating. And that Reagan, and this is not just you, I think others look at the period and see it the same way, was focused on U.S. economic strength, and military strength, doing the domestic work at home before summitry. Absolutely right. He wanted to go with the undeniably stronger hand. And the Reagan candidacy of 1980 is a really stark contrast to the Reagan candidacy of 1984, right? In 1984, it's morning in America. Um, in 1980, the Reagan candidacy, starting with his speech accepting the presidential nomination at the RNC in, in, uh, in Detroit, is really pessimistic. This is, this is a man and not the only person in the United States who thinks that on many important metrics, the Soviets are winning the cold, right. that they're spreading their influence with alarming success in the developing world, that their military strength is going up and up and up while America's has at best plateaued uh, and at worst in the aftermath of the Vietnam War is on the decline. Uh, so in the early years of the Reagan presidency, when also the United States is hit by a recession. Sure, um, inflation. As, uh, and, and in the aftermath of stagflation uh, right. and the uh, so-called panic at the pump uh, episodes where, where people are lining up in enormous number hours to, to just gas their cars up. No American president, certainly not Ronald Reagan, would feel that he was meeting with his Soviet counterpart with a better hand. It's by 1985 where that perceived balance of power 
And I emphasize perceived because frankly, I think Reagan overestimated this and underestimated some right. of the Soviets' very they, real them problems. Ten feet and us too small. It wasn't actually yeah. that. Um, bad. There was there was some calibrating that needed to happen. Uh, but the Ra Reagan's conclusion was that it didn't make sense to try to do deals until you could do deals that locked in American strength. Although you did point out that there was work being done kind of below the public eye. Exactly. Lay the groundwork for Lay it. the groundwork, correct. Do small deals about small issues. Keep that also, to a certain extent, just so, keep that safety valve there, right, through the communication. This, th these points you, you crafted, obviously authentically kind of Reagan in terms of looking at the history, but also with an eye towards the Biden administration. You're a scholar. You look backward in terms of history and mining history. But it seems to be, from your outlook, you got to have a clear direction, have that grand strategy. You talk about this kind of dual layer and don't meet for the sake of meeting are some of the elements I guess you're saying should inform the Biden administration as they look out to dealing with China, for example. I was thinking about how the Biden administration thought about Russia and China and Iran. Um, and I was also informed, uh, I think it's fair to say, by how the Trump administration had dealt with North Korea um, and a series of meetings with the dictator of North Korea, which seemed to me like meeting for the sake of meeting. Symmetry for the sake of symmetry. Maybe exactly. we'll yield something. Exactly. Well, I, uh, I want to get you quick and you know, feel free to pass if it's not something you, you want to do. But we did have a virtual summit or meeting. I'm not sure what is a better characteristic of late um, between President Biden and Xi. Was that a summit for the sake of a summit or a virtual meeting for the sake of virtual meeting? Or was it done appropriately and proportionally given to where each administration, or in this case, the Biden administration is and where they are with respect to their strategy and the approach? So I think it was wise not to do that as someone visiting the other's capital or both, you know, traveling to some neutral territory. COVID helped there because I think COVID, it wasn't going to happen anyway. COVID, well, I think if I think if the heads of state of the United States and the People's Republic of China decided that they wanted to meet, I think they could make that happen. Um, I'm, 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 I'm yeah. pretty optimistic. I think it provided a, a nice way of not needing to make it a full-fledged summit. Uh, when you start using words like summit, it inflates expectations, uh, which is why I think, which I think was something that Reagan understood very well because he understood the public uh, the public impact of, of foreign policy acts. Um, so I think, I think it was appropriate that it was in that sort of more uh, less significant, less, less impactful format uh, for which COVID was a nice fig leaf, but I think could have been you know, transcended had both parties uh, wished. It's not clear to me what came out of that engagement uh, in terms of, of agreements. And I want to be very clear, I think I make this point in the War on the Rocks piece that you're referencing, as well as in the book, that there is value to keeping lines of communication open. Yes. Uh, I don't want anyone to think that what I'm saying is that you should not talk to adversaries or competitors or whatever language you want to use until you sort of have them where you want them and you can you can uh, force them to, to comply with your will. So I don't uh, question the utility of that. 
I would say that the meeting in Alaska, for example, that took place earlier is the, more the secretary of state and national security advisor dealing with their counterparts, which is the more to have pretty confrontational. Yeah. Is the more appropriate forum uh, in which to, in which to do that. That being said, if, you know, if, if a Biden administration official is listening to this and is, wants to rebut oh, they're big argument. listeners to Reaganism, I'm sure. <laughs> well, they ought to be, uh, <laughs> they, their best counter argument would be, and, and I, I don't have a, a, a watertight rebuttal for this. There are some things that you just need the president to say to his or her counterpart, uh, it, that there is a credibility uh, that comes with that. And that's true of Reagan, right? When they, when the final deal on the Pentecostalists is made, the Soviet ambassador is brought to the Oval Office. He doesn't know he's going. He thinks he's going to the State Department. Uh, and they go to the White House. There is a utility of having Ronald Reagan himself say, I won't make political hay out of this, as opposed to even a trusted key advisor say, the president wants you to know that he won't. That makes sense. Let, let's move on. In the remaining time we have before we get to our lightning round about a book that you are co-editing, forthcoming book called The Reagan Moment, a chance to look at some of the book in advance of this conversation. In the conclusion, which is an essay you wrote, there's, I'll note, there's six parts to this book, and you look at Reagan from global and domestic issues, Western and Eastern Europe, human rights, domestic politics, Latin America, and really going across all aspects of Reagan, Reagan foreign policy, but the conclusion is entitled Reagan reconsidered. And you kind of frame this discussion about a more balanced appraisal of Reagan from perhaps the prevailing narrative when he came into office, which was that he was kind of out of depth and was kind of former actor. Totally unqualified. Yeah. Totally unqualified was, was the view particularly of the New York times and friends you introduce this by going to a very consequential date in history, December 6th, 1986, Saturday Night Live, which is yes. all great works of history should reference when making their point. What did America watch on Saturday Night Live on December 6th, 1986? Well, on that night of Saturday Night Live, they watched a really nice sketch uh, called President Reagan Mastermind. And so 1986 was absolutely the, the era in which uh, many SNL viewers would associate Reagan with being kind of a bumbling oaf um, whose administration had had some serious missteps uh, and that he was sort of at best asleep at the, at sleep at the wheel and at worst was knowingly careening around and bumping into guardrails left and right. And then they see a Ronald Reagan who speaks multiple languages, can do complex mathematics in his head, much more complex than I can, um, <laughs> who is sort of whipping his uh, key, lead, key uh, administration figures behind his agenda, as opposed to being the puppet of various factions, which was another story that was often uh, being told, and who had a sort of huge grand strategic insight on America's role in the world and all of these different complex relationships. So in the SNL sketch, he loves doing this and then Jimmy Stewart shows up uh, and Reagan has to shoo everyone out of the room 
And then he has to meet with Jimmy Stewart and he's clearly just trying to get Jimmy Stewart out as fast <laughs> as he can. So he can go back to thinking about how much gold he needs to send to Saudi Arabia in exchange for what quantity of oil. Uh, and then a, the, the best Girl Scout cookie seller in the, in the country comes and he again has to shoo everyone out. And he says, you know, this is the part that I hate the most is, is meeting with all these you know, perfectly nice people, uh, which is not what many people thought of Reagan, that he really wanted the presidency as a figurehead job, uh, that he really only liked the schmoozy stuff and didn't want to do policy. So and, and that is. Note, yeah, yeah. And you note, you know, kind of after presenting the Saturday Night Live sketch that the Reagan revisionism, which of course you are a contributing member and this book you're co-editing and the, and, the, and the books you've written contribute to was born, you know, at Saturday Night Live, live from New York, you know? So of course uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice way kind of to frame it. Where do you kind of stand? Where did Reagan revisionists stand? I mean, is this now somehow walk back that, that very popular narrative of, of 1986. Is it still a live debate or is kind of most people looking at this seriously, seeing it the way you see it? I think there's a, a diversity of viewpoints. And a lot of that has to do with what piece of the Reagan presidency you're really focused on, right? So um, my focus above all is foreign policy. And within that is on U.S.-Soviet relations. And I think I say this in the introduction to engaging the evil empire. Had I focused, for example, on Latin America as extensively as I focused on the Soviet Union, I would probably have a lot more critical things to say about U.S. foreign policy. Um, I am overall bullish on, on American foreign policy in the 1980s. I think it enjoyed a great many successes. But I don't know of any foreign policy over eight years that enjoyed that that enjoyed exclusively success without uh, any any missteps. Got the big things right, or some of the big things right is is, right. is why and, I think it's. Changed. And if you're looking at Reagan, I think that's especially interesting because I think that the president himself definitely had a hierarchy of issues, which is what doing good grand strategy is, right? Is prioritizing and saying, well, this matters the most. Right. Um, and those are the issues in which he, in which, on which his fingerprints are to the greatest extent, and that is U.S.-Soviet relations. So Before we jump to the lightning round, as I mentioned at the outset, you are a professor at Duke University, teaching students, young American minds, shaping, molding those minds. They come into your classroom and you start talking about Reagan, or at least they Google you before they walk into the classroom and they say, this professor, he's young, he's with it, but why is he obsessed with the 40th president of the United States and this conservative Republican? Do you attrit students because of that? Or do they come in, look to challenge you? Or do some come in there and they're actually interested in this? Tell us about your experience dealing with the students at Duke University and elsewhere when you well, I think Duke students are, as a population, extraordinarily curious. And so even if they might wonder, why is the present from 1981 to 1989 a useful uh, paradigm for understanding American foreign policy today, uh, they come and want to engage on that point. Um, and so when I teach, for example, courses on American grand strategy, or when I teach courses on the history of strategy, uh, of course, Reagan uh, figures prominently in those. It is true, and you mentioned this right at the very beginning, 
my life and the Reagan presidency overlapped only for a matter of very, very, very few months, um, basically a quarter. And so I kind of come at this uh, not with a, a strong ideological uh, mission here. I didn't live through the Reagan presidency. The very brief period that I did, I was not you know, politically conscious. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was more preoccupied with other pressing issues in my life at the time, um, <laughs> learning to walk, uh, things like that. Um, so the issue for me is very similar for a lot of my students, that it, it was not inevitable that I would be drawn to this. Uh, it wasn't my formative year. I mean, it was my formative years, but not in a political sense. Right. Um, it was literally <laughs> basic my childhood years. development. Yeah, yeah. Basic kind of, you know, embryo, fetus, so and so forth. Uh, highly formative, but not years that really uh, impacted me in a, in a political sense, in a, in a historical intellectual sense. And so I think I approached the topic on those terms. Uh, the same terms that my students do, which is it's not inevitable that this is interesting and meaningful. So let's talk about why it is. And I try to make the case for what we can learn about how Reagan succeeded and failed in foreign policy, what our world today looks like having been shaped to a great deal by those years in international politics as well, right? We live in a post-Cold War world to me, that doesn't mean, therefore, we should forget all about the Cold War. To me, what that means is we should think about how the Cold War got us into this world that we live in now. Dr. Simon Miles, grand strategist from Duke University. We're going to jump to the lightning round. This is where we ask our guests to share with us their favorite Reagan book, or book on Reagan, favorite speech by President Reagan, and favorite quote. What do you got for us today? Okay, uh, the first book on President Reagan to me has to be um, the really wonderful biography by Lou Cannon, uh, who was a journalist uh, with the Washington Post and wrote what still to me is the best biography of Ronald Reagan. Um, I think he captures insights into how Reagan operated, which are enduring and and i don't think that it's been surpassed uh yet as an account it's amazing a fair account. amazing man he's what in the 90s and still uh, quite active and he's still engaging. working yeah. um it's a very fair account uh it is reagan you know warts and all but it's also not a caricatured reagan and there are a lot of reagan books which are caricatures on either side either reagan is sort of devil incarnate or uh, Reagan as sort of the perfect avatar of America. Uh, so that's that's my-, my All right, we got uh, Lou Cannon. That's a great one. Lou Cannon, um, uh, I'm a fan. Uh, the speech uh, uh, by Reagan to me has to be the Westminster speech uh, where Reagan talks in serious terms about the Soviet system and the pain that communism inflicted on people living in those societies. And full disclosure, that's where my family comes from. So I, I have uh, not only did that imbue me with some language skills, which made my doing my job easier. Um, I think I think Reagan understood that there was a bigger intellectual ideological issue here than just kind of great power uh, competition. Uh, 
that that I think is a, is a very meaningful speech, and uh, I think we're all better off for the fact June that... June 1982 will be the 40th anniversary, so look for more yes. here from the Reagan Institute on that. We, we, I, we see it the way you do, Simon. I think we're all better off for the fact that, that, that communism was left on the ash heap of history, at least in the Soviet Union. Uh, and then the Reagan quote. Um, okay, let's so go. Like you, Roger, uh, I've really enjoyed reading his uh, diaries. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes comes from an, a diary entry in the fall of 1983, where Reagan is being briefed on uh, what the Soviets are saying about this kind of fear of aggression. And while he understands that some of this is for public consumption, um, he also writes in his diary that he doesn't understand uh, what they think they've got that anyone would want, <laughs> uh, which I think is a very funny kind of way of thinking about this fear of conquest uh, where Reagan is, is, is saying, well, what on earth would we want to go there and take um, from them? And, and it's a nice moment of humor. Uh, I think it's a nice moment. Some searing truth as well, right? Yeah, which reflects how Reagan understood the world, which is maybe not the way that would get you an A in my graduate seminars, but has a ton of utility and value. Uh, I think it speaks to that kind of understanding of the world, uh, which Reagan exemplified, which I think has been missed by a lot of people who've worked on Reagan, um, and which, which hopefully uh, my work showcases uh, in, to some extent. Dr. Simon Miles, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.